Good morning. If I take a couple of extra water breaks, it's because I'm dying. Denzel Washington is one of my favorite actors. He, uh, he's played in so many different movies, and in all of his roles, he plays the same person. You know, No matter what movie Denzel is acting in, he's always just playing Denzel in some different character. One of his most popular movies is The Book of Eli. If you haven't seen it, spoilers are coming. In this movie, The Book of Eli, you encounter a man. Eli is his name. And he is in a post-apocalyptic world. And he's trying to make it to this destination. You don't really know what the destination is until the end of the movie, but he's trying to get there. And he encounters trouble all along the way, all along the road. It's like a theologically stunted version of Pilgrim's Progress and much more violent. Every time Eli encounters a problem, he shoots his way out of it or uses his sword and cuts his opposition to pieces. What's so incredible about this story is that at the very end of it, you find something incredible. You find out something incredible about Eli. It's that he's blind. You don't see it coming. The whole movie, you've never... You've never suspected that this guy is blind. How can he shoot? How can he fight with swords? How can he do what he's doing? Well, although Eli is blind, he can perceive. And he can perceive in a way that others around him cannot. Long before anyone ever thought about writing the book of Eli, there was the book of Mark. And in the 10th chapter of the book of Mark, we read of another man, Bartimaeus. And Bartimaeus was blind. And like Eli, Bartimaeus, though blind, could perceive things better than those around him. Let's read about it in Mark chapter 10. We'll start in verse 41, make our way to verse That's not correct. We'll start in verse 46. And they came to Jericho. And as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to tr- cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, Call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, Take heart. Get up. He's calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. Well, this is God's holy, inspired, inerrant, and infallible word. Amen? As you'll remember, brothers and sisters, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. And as he approaches the city, Mark tells us that he's entering through Jericho. Now, if you remember from your Old Testaments, Jericho is the city through which Israel entered the promised land the first time. And so as Jesus, the son of David, 
the greater Israel is preparing to enter into Jerusalem, the city of David. He's doing it through the gate of Jericho. And as Jesus is making this journey uphill towards Jerusalem, he encounters a man named Bartimaeus, which we read about in verse 46. And they came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. Now, before we start talking much about Bartimaeus, you should know that Bartimaeus isn't actually his name. Bar is simply a prefix in, you know, that Jews would use that would say it would mean the son of. So Bartimaeus means son of Timaeus, and Mark actually translates that for his audience, which would have not probably understood that. So Bartimaeus is actually just the son of Timaeus. The text will also tell us that Jesus is the son of David. Well, who is Timaeus? Nobody really knows. Who is David? Everyone knows. Let that contrast stand out in your mind. The text tells us that this man, Bartimaeus, he's sitting on the side of the road when he hears that Jesus is near. And when he hears about Jesus, he immediately leaps into action. You can feel this man's desperation as he hears Jesus begin to pass by. And then he starts screaming and he cries out, doing whatever he can, hoping, praying to get Jesus' attention. Well, I think we can learn a lot about Jesus, grace, discipleship, salvation, and even ourselves in this account of Bartimaeus. This account comes after several other accounts, and I think Mark put it here on purpose so that we can see the contrast between Bartimaeus and the rich young ruler, Bartimaeus and the sons of Zebedee. Pay attention to these contrasts this morning. They teach us much about what it means to be a disciple. And so I've entitled this sermon, Bartimaeus, the better disciple. This morning's sermon has nine points. So for the note takers, be prepared. Nine points. Point number one, like Bartimaeus, we must rightly see Jesus. We must rightly see Jesus. The first thing that we learned this morning is that Bartimaeus, although blind, he can see Jesus. Now, physically, he can see nothing, but he can perceive something about Jesus that almost no one else in the book of Mark, except for the demons, have been able to perceive. During our trek through the book of Mark, we've seen that people cannot perceive Jesus for any number of reasons. The disciples, they can't understand who Jesus is because of their hard-heartedness. The crowds that don't understand Jesus because they're pursuing Jesus for their own selfish, self-interested reasons. The religious leaders can't see Jesus because they're blinded by their hatred for him and many other sins. When Peter finally does call Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God, Jesus tells them, you didn't even come up with that answer. God told it to you. Here, Bartimaeus rightly sees Jesus. He calls him the Son of David, which would have been synonymous for just basically calling him Messiah. He cries out, Messiah, Messiah. Son of David. Later in the text, he also calls him Rabuni. Now, I know in your English translations, you're reading and it says rabbi. But the actual Greek word here is not rabbi. It's Rabuni. It's a very uncommon word in the New Testament. And it was only typically used of Jews when they were speaking to God in prayer. 
So this man recognizes something about Jesus. He recognizes his true identity and he addresses Jesus in line with this identity. And this poor, pitiable blind man on the side of the road, he perceives Jesus rightly. And he doesn't just perceive him to be a Messiah. He also perceives him to be a merciful Messiah. Look in verse 47. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. It's as if Bartimaeus knows that if this man is the Messiah of God, then he must be a merciful Messiah. Other places in the book of Mark, when certain people encounter Jesus, they encounter him and they think that maybe he has the power to do them good, but they're unsure about whether or not he will be merciful to them. They say things to Jesus like, I know you are able, able but if you're willing, please heal me. This makes sense when you think about the way a Jew would have understood God. They would have recalled passages from the Old Testament like, where God says, I have mercy on whom I have mercy. But Bartimaeus is so desperate, he doesn't even think about it that way. He's all out of options. He's never had any options. The rich young ruler from last week's account was earnest in pursuing Jesus, but Bartimaeus, he's something more important than earnest. He's desperate. If he had other options, he wouldn't be this way. The only possibility of Bartimaeus being healed is passing right in front of his eyes. And he can't even see him. He can't even get up and stand and walk over to him. So he does the only thing he knows to do. He cries out. He knows that this saving power of this Messiah will not be available to him forever. He understands God. He understands God to be a merciful God. But he knows that God's mercy is not eternally available. God is a merciful God, but he has only made his mercy available to us for a moment, friends. It may feel like it's available to you forever, but the Bible says that you are here today and gone tomorrow. Your life is like a vapor. And the Bible also says that his mercy is available to us only as long as we live. It is appointed for each man to live once and then die. And then comes the judgment. Bartimaeus is desperate for mercy. But so many of us presume upon God's mercy. We think that it will always be available to us. But it may not be. It most certainly will not be. This should affect the way we think about evangelism. We look at the people in our lives that we love and that we care about, and we think there's always going to be time to have that hard conversation. You know, I'll do it next Thanksgiving, or next time they're in town, I'll say that thing that I, I, I wanted to say this time, but it would, have been, it would have been too uncomfortable. It would have been too hard. I, and we invent reasons, and I, I would have messed up, and I wouldn't have said it right, and, or it's just going to mess up our relationship, and, and then I'll never be able to speak truth. Well, friends, Tomorrow is not promised to you. It's not promised to your lost relatives or coworkers or schoolmates. Mercy, the mercy of God, is cutting a path 
right before the eyes of every single person that's living at this moment. But there will be a time where Jesus will no longer be in front of us and his mercy will no longer be available to us. And he will be out of our earshot. And that moment will come before we even know it. God has an infinite supply of mercy. But that mercy is not infinitely supplied. From Bartimaeus, we learn to rightly see Jesus as a merciful Messiah and to embrace that mercy now while we still can. Like Bartimaeus, we must pursue Jesus. Point number two, we must pursue Jesus. Verse 47 says that he heard Jesus and he began to shout. He's hoping beyond hope that as this crowd that surrounds Jesus moves past him, that somehow, someway, Jesus will hear his voice out of all the other voices. That he can shout and scream loud enough that Jesus will hear him. This blind beggar has no chance of getting up and approaching Jesus, of moving into the crowd. I don't know if you've ever been to a concert and you wanted to get to the front. You can do it when it's really packed. You just have to be dedicated. You got to be willing to push a couple people, bite a couple people, slip in, dodge, weave. This blind man has not the ability to do that. He doesn't even have the ability to begin to get up and walk towards the crowd. Earlier in the book of Mark, we saw a man who had friends who went and opened up the top of a house and let the man down into Jesus so that he could be healed. Bartimaeus does not have that available to him. But he pursues Jesus the only way that he knows how. He cries out. Friends, you don't have to have all the answers. You don't have to wait until you have it all figured out to pursue Christ. Most of us in this room are already pursuing Christ, so let me just let that be an encouragement to you when you talk to people in evangelism. People so often think they have to have all the details of their life figured out in order for them to start pursuing Christ. I have to be able to go to church every Sunday and I have to read my Bible every night. You don't. Jesus is in front of you. Just, just do something. Do anything. Just begin to pursue Jesus. I know some people who said, I didn't really know what to do, so I just opened the book of Romans and started reading. That's a good place to start. Like Bartimaeus, we, have, we must have faith in Jesus. Point number three. You know, Bartimaeus is not approaching Jesus like an ancient Near Eastern shaman or a physician, but he's approaching him as a Messiah. He believes that Jesus is who he says he is. And that faith is what leads him to cry out. Point number four. Like Bartimaeus, we must pursue Jesus in desperation. And we've seen this already. We know that, Jesus, that Bartimaeus only has one shot. And so he's frantic. The crowd tries to shout him down, but he just screams louder. He can't be stopped. He knows the mercy of God is right in front of him and available to him, and so he's desperate for it. What does it look like for you to be desperate in your pursuit of Jesus? As I was thinking about this this week, 
I, I couldn't really think of any good examples to lay before you for what it looks like to desperately pursue Jesus because it, 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 could, it could crush some people and make them feel like, well, I'm never going to get there. But I can think of some examples of what it looks like to not desperately pursue Jesus. Just never reading your Bible. Just always plopping down and turning on the TV or grabbing the computer. You know, just not caring about the church. Not fellowshipping with your brothers and sisters in Christ. Never praying. You know, these are the basic means that God has given us to pursue Him, to pursue a relationship with Him. Not trusting in the Holy Spirit's work in your life. As I, as I look at Bartimaeus and I think, okay, we need to desperately pursue Jesus, I kind of feel like I just, need to, I just need to dial that down and say, man, we just need to pursue Jesus. We just need to do the basic ordinary things that, that God has given us in order to pursue him. Point number five, like Bartimaeus, we must overcome opposition in pursuing Jesus. You know, the crowd, it seems like they're trying to get Bartimaeus to stay in his place. But he isn't listening. What's tragic about this scene, as well as other, other scenes in chapters 9 and 10, is that the very people who are following Jesus are actively opposing someone else from following Jesus. We saw that earlier with the disciples. Hey, that guy's not part of our clique, Jesus. We saw it when moms tried to bring babies to Jesus. Jesus said, let them come to me. But the, the disciples, they, they, they thought these children weren't worthy of coming to Jesus. Here in the text, we see a bunch of people who are following Jesus, many of whom have probably also been healed by Jesus, who have been touched and affected by Jesus. And they look at this poor blind beggar and they say, no, no mercy for you. All the mercy is for us. And I've thought about this. I, I thought of a person, you know, pouring a glass of water for themselves and then breaking the spigot off so no one else could have any. This is like children climbing up into the treehouse and then pulling the ladder up behind them so no one else can go up and play. Jesus has already warned us how dangerous this is. He says, listen, if you're going to try to stop people from following me, you might as well just tie a millstone around your neck and throw it into the ocean. A disciple of Jesus that impedes others from following Jesus is a contradiction in terms. Your job as a disciple of Jesus Christ is to help other people follow Jesus Christ. At, at best, our lack of obedience should result in us being lazy in doing that. At worst, what we often see is we prevent other people from following Jesus Christ. And for reasons that are not God's reasons. You know, why, why did they stop this poor blind beggar? Why, why did the disciples want to prevent the children from coming to Jesus? Well, it all has to do with status. But you don't have to have a particular status to approach Jesus. And if we try to prevent people from coming to Jesus because they don't match what we think a Jesus follower should look like or be like, or sound like, or act like, or dress like. We're committing the same kinds of sins. I still remember being a young Christian, 
radically saved by Jesus Christ. Wearing a pair of dicky shorts and an A-frame tank top and I had a gold grill in my mouth and my pants were halfway down my butt. And I had a, you know, a rough exterior and I, you know, I was saved and I had the joy of the Lord, Lord in my heart, but you it would have been hard to see it on my face, you know. And I remember walking into a church and having people just kind of turn their shoulders away from me. You know, I would sit down and they would kind of grab their purses or their children. I remember walking into churches and nobody really saying anything to me until they found out that I was there to preach to their youth group. And then afterwards, everything changed. But initially, I didn't match their idea of what a Jesus follower should look like or sound like. And I felt like they were withholding God's grace from me. Don't ever render judgments on who can or cannot receive the grace of God on appearance or status or income or anything along those lines. Jesus came to save the freaks. He came to save the lowly, the poor. He came to save you and me. Maybe you wearing your khakis and your buttoned-up shirt, maybe you're the weird one in the kingdom of heaven. No offense, Spencer. Khaki buttoned-up shirt. Bartimaeus was humble. And we must be humble towards Jesus as well. Point six. This blind man knows that he can do nothing for Jesus. He knows his lowly state. He knows his desperate position. And so he approaches Jesus like the, the blind beggar that he is. He says, son of David, have mercy on me. Now this is in stark contrast to the rich young ruler we just studied last week. The rich young ruler approaches Jesus with a thin veneer of desperation and humility, but it's really just something that's covering up his can-do attitude. The rich young ruler approaches Jesus and says, tell me what I need to do. I got this. Tell me what I need to do to inherit eternal life. But Bartimaeus can't do that. He has no choice but to recognize his lowly state. The rich young ruler walked away sad, unable to become a follower, a disciple of Jesus Christ. But Bartimaeus, who had no choice but to recognize his lowly state, well, he walked away as a disciple of Jesus Christ. So how do you see yourself? You know, one of the, one of the ways that it's easy for us to not act like those church people I just told you about from my own story, one of the ways that it's it's easy for us to not act like them towards other people is if we see ourselves like those people. You know, if we see ourselves as the, the poor, the blind, the beggars, the invalids, you know, the people who really need Jesus to do something for us, not the people who have it all together. Do you recognize your lowly state? Or do you think more highly of yourself than you ought? You know, the world tells us to esteem ourselves. And in one sense, that's true. We are created in the image and likeness of God, and because of that, we have inherent value, dignity, and worth. But on the other hand, we can esteem ourselves for all the wrong reasons. 
The world tells us to be confident in our abilities, to be confident in our looks, to be confident in our emotions, to be confident in the fact that we are good people. But the Bible tells us that we are lost and that we are dead in sin. And the only way for us to be made right with God is through his son, Jesus Christ. And the only way that Jesus Christ will do us good is if we come before him in humility as the poor blind beggars that we really are. We must approach Jesus like Bartimaeus. <coughs> Brothers and sisters, this is even after we've been saved. You know, it's not like Jesus saved you and now you're a superhero. You're still hanging on every day by the grace that nourishes you directly from Jesus Christ. If you're more holy today than you were yesterday, it's only because God has been kind enough to sanctify you and to discipline you and to rid you of the sin that ensnares you. Jesus hasn't saved you, saved you and then made you totally able. Until you get to heaven, you will be utterly dependent upon Jesus Christ for your very existence, for every second, until you get to go be with him face to face. So whether we are lost or saved, we all must still approach Jesus like Bartimaeus in humble desperation. Number seven, like Bartimaeus, we must petition Jesus. Look at verses 49 through 51. And Jesus stopped and said, call him. And they called the blind man saying to him, take heart, get up, he's calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. The crowd seems to flip real quick, doesn't it? The first, the first time the crowd says something to him, it's shut up, you beggar, you blind beggar. Jesus doesn't have anything for you. Be quiet, stay in your place. Who do you think you are? Now it's, oh, uh, he calls you. Hey, come on, buddy. Yeah, let's go. But Bartimaeus doesn't care about any of that. He leaps up, he throws off his cloak, and he runs to Jesus. It's significant to note that Mark includes this detail about this man throwing off his cloak. The cloak was a bare necessity in ancient days. There was actually a provision in the Old Testament that said that if a man borrowed money from you and left you his cloak, that even if he didn't pay you the money back, you still had to give him his cloak back before the end of the day because he needed it to keep warm in the night. For this for this poor blind beggar, this coat would have probably been his most important possession. It probably would have been his only possession. It would have kept him from the sun rays during the day and in the heat. It would have kept him from the wind chills at night and in the cold. If it rained, it would have offered him some layer of protection and warmth. And as soon as Bartimaeus heard that Jesus was calling him, he cast it aside. This is like someone in our day throwing their iPhone on the ground and running to Jesus. It's just unheard of. It's a big deal. Will it be there when he gets back? He doesn't care. 
The man has tunnel vision on Jesus, and everything else becomes blurry. As Bartimaeus stands in front of Jesus expectantly, probably nervously, Jesus asks him this question. He says, what do you want me to do for you? Bartimaeus, what do you want me to do for you? If you remember, this is the same question that Jesus asked the sons of Zebedee. The sons of Zebedee approached Jesus and they said, Jesus, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And Jesus he doesn't start by saying, okay, start over. You know, he just responds and he says, what do you want me to do for you, James and John? Well, here he asks Bartimaeus the same thing. And this man asks to be made whole. He asks to be able to see again. I wonder if Jesus asks Bartimaeus this very obvious question. You know, God has a habit of doing that, right? He asks obvious questions that almost everyone knows the answer to. This blind man is walking up to Jesus, and he's there, and he wants something from him. And Jesus says, well, what do you want from me, Mr. Blind Man? Is that cruel of Jesus? Why are you making him say it? Well, in the past, we've seen that Jesus does it to make people state their need out loud. This time, I wonder... I wonder if Jesus did it as a rebuke to James and John who would have very likely been standing right there. I wonder if James and John, as they stood and watched this poor, pitiable blind man asked to have nothing more than his sight restored, if it would have stuck them like a dagger in their hearts and if they would have remembered the same question from Jesus in their own sinful, selfish response. The man says, I just want to be able to see again, Jesus. I just want to be whole. I want to be normal I can't, I can't do this anymore. Please just make me normal. Make me whole. And here are James and John. I want to be great. I want authority. I want power, Jesus. I wonder if they felt that stab of conviction as they heard this request from Bartimaeus. This man wants to be made new. To be the way he was before sin entered into the world. You know, this prayer is the kind of prayer that we pray when we pray the Lord's Prayer. We basically pray for the stain of sin to be removed from our lives and from the world. We pray these words. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. And then we say, give us this day our daily bread. Give us this day our daily bread. This is the same kind of prayer that Bartimaeus is praying. He's not praying for selfishly extravagant things. He's just praying for the bare necessities of life. You know, some of our most basic needs are actually our most profound needs. We don't think about it until we lose it. Some of you know that this week I lost my sense of taste and smell. I didn't realize how profound they were until I lost them. You know, you don't realize how important your neck is until you tweak it or your knee is until you injure it. So many people are living lives of suffering without just having these basic abilities, like the ability to see. I think of our sister Catherine, who has 15 different ways that she is unable to have a normal life, to be the way she was supposed to be in Genesis 1. 
And Jesus teaches us to pray about those things, to go to him, to request those things from him. And sometimes for his own wise purposes, he leaves us with those things missing, incomplete in our lives. But that doesn't mean we still shouldn't ask. James and John, they kind of pray the opposite of the Lord's Prayer. The Lord's Prayer says, Our, you know, uh, your kingdom come, your will be done. And James and John are like, hey, our kingdom come, our will be done. We want what we want when we want it how we want it. So I think in Bartimaeus' request, he teaches us how to approach Jesus and to petition for our needs. Point number eight. Like Bartimaeus, we must be healed by Jesus. In response to Bartimaeus' faith, his desperation, his humility, his perseverance, Jesus heals him. Look at verse 52. And Jesus said to him, Go your way, your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. Now, I've said this before, maybe you've forgotten. The Greek word for heal, it can also mean to save. And so, in light of that fun little piece of trivia, pastors, when they come to a place where it says that God has healed someone, you know, and there's obviously something spiritual happening as well, we like to say, well, which one is it? Is he healed or is he saved? And then there's the tension in the room and we go, well, both, obviously. And, you know, it's our fun little game that we play, but I think it's, I think it's actually very accurate in this, in this account. In verse 52, we see that his faith made him well and that he immediately received his sight. But then the text says, and he followed Jesus. He followed Jesus. In the case of his physical healing, it's obvious his, his sight has been restored. He's been healed. But now it seems like his, his spiritual sight has also been restored. And the eyes of his flesh and the eyes of his heart match up. He sees physically and spiritually accurately. You know, that's true for all of us if we are in Christ. One day, one day our physical eyes will match our spiritual eyes. We walk by faith, brothers and sisters. What that means is that our spiritual eyes perceive the promises of God. They perceive spiritual realities and we trust in those things and we walk according to those things knowing that one day we will observe God with our physical eyes and faith will be no more because it will not be necessary. We will truly walk by sight. The text says that he immediately followed Jesus. And so it appears that his healing and his salvation are in some sense simultaneous. And this evidence is borne out by his obedience in following Jesus. And that brings us to our final point, point number nine. Like Bartimaeus, we must follow Jesus. You know, the blind man does what the rich young ruler couldn't do, but what we all must do. He leaves everything behind and he follows Jesus. I think this contrast is here for a reason. You know, Levi left his tax booth. James and John left their boat. Peter and Andrew left their nets. 
This poor beggar left his cloak. But the rich young ruler, he couldn't leave his possessions. All these people left everything. But why is the rich man not able to leave everything? And this man is. Do not underestimate, brothers and sisters, the hold your possessions can have on your heart. For some, it may not even be the idea of losing earthly possessions that gets you. Maybe you're fine with losing earthly possessions. Maybe it's just the idea of losing all that time and energy you invested in those things that you've purchased with money. I've worked 30 years to pay off this mortgage and accumulate these goods. I get it. But Jesus isn't concerned with your goods. He's concerned with your heart. You know, whether you own a ratty old cloak or half the world, Jesus is concerned that he is your greatest treasure. He's concerned that he is the deepest desire of your heart. When Jesus is your treasure, everything else is minimized in this life. Look at the way this man treated his most valuable possession. The text says that he cast it aside. Now here's a question that maybe you haven't asked yourself. Why did he cast it aside? He didn't have to cast it aside. It's a cloak, not a Buick. He could have carried it with him to Jesus. But I think that's what happens when Jesus calls us to himself. He's so important and so valuable and so treasured that even the most important things in this world to us become like trash. They become worthless. Even if we don't have to, we're still willing to just cast them off and to follow Jesus Christ. And that doesn't even necessarily mean that you'll be called to abandon everything. But it will be a calling for you to live as if these things are nothing to you, to treat them differently. You know, now your career isn't this thing that you love for its own end. Your career is something that you're heavily invested in because you realize that it gives you influence and resources and an ability to serve the church and its gospel mission and to support missionaries and to evangelize your coworkers. And so now the importance of your career is totally relativized in light of your call to follow Jesus. Now money isn't something that you live for, but it's something that serves us as we serve Jesus. When we begin to follow Jesus, all the things of this world begin to take on a different shape. Our families are no longer things that we build our identities on, but they're things that we use to propagate the gospel, even if it's just with our children and wives and husbands. We train our children up to be disciples of Jesus rather than mirrors of our own sinful selves, mirror images. And none of this is under compulsion. You know, even if, even if your pastor up here gets carried away sometimes and what he's saying, and if it sounds like it is, it's not, it's never under compulsion. You know, Jesus, after he healed this man, he simply said, go. Go your own way. It's almost like this blind man is asking the same question that Peter asked when Jesus said, are you going to leave me now? And Peter said, well, where else are we going to go, Master? You alone have the words of life. 
Jesus tells this man who's just received his sight, go. And he says, no, where else am I going to go? You have given me life. And so the man willingly follows Jesus. Friends, beware of a church that tries to force you to follow Christ. Jesus is not pleased with religion under compulsion. This is one of the main differences between us and our Islamic friends. They are content if you worship Allah under compulsion. We realize that you cannot worship God under compulsion. You cannot follow Christ under compulsion. Churches can do this even by having you follow Christ just the way that they think you need to do it. In this church, we want to call you to follow Christ. And we hope that you will go wherever the words of life are. If you eventually end up feeling like the words of life are not in this church, you should leave and go and find the words of life. At the beginning of this account, we see Bartimaeus was by the roadside. By the roadside. He was just living his life on the side of the road. And at the end of the account, we see that Bartimaeus is on the road following Jesus. Isn't that your story and mine? You know, we approach Jesus for one reason or another, looking for something from him, sometimes not even really knowing what it is. And then he heals us and he makes us whole. And he gives us eyes to see. And then we follow him. You know, Bartimaeus joined this group of Jesus followers, some of the very ones who were trying to prevent him from following Jesus. Not everyone who is on the road to glory with you now belongs to Jesus Christ. In this church, we're on the other side of the cross, but we are still on this road together. And we are all following Jesus down the path of suffering towards the promise of glory in the new heavens and new earth. We are a group of Jesus followers and we are very imperfect in so many different ways. Sometimes we even try to prevent others from following Jesus. And some of us may not even be following Jesus at all. But for the most part, this church is full of Bartimaeuses who were once blind but who now see. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you continue to help us see clearly. We know that this world and Satan in our own sin is trying to blind us. But we ask that you would open the eyes of our hearts to see all that we ought to see the way that you see it that we might follow you more faithfully. Amen.